This week in our series, we are looking at the leadership style of Jesus. And before any of you start to think, wait, you know what? I'm not a leader. Like, I don't need to even listen to the rest of this sermon. And I could just... I could just sign out right now. Can I stop you before you do that? Can I stop you? For those that might be thinking, man, I'm not a leader. Or you don't see yourself as a leader. Can I just say that every single one of us at some level, whether it's a formal or an informal role or responsibility, we are all leaders. You may have a formal responsibility like you might be on the church leadership team and on and on the board or you know things like that whether it's this visible position of leadership within the church or maybe for many of us it's an informal responsibility can i say or can i suggest this that anyone who influences someone else is a leader so what jesus has to say And the leadership of Jesus, actually, it's going to impact all of us. Here's the context in all this. As Jesus and the disciples are on the way to Jerusalem, on their way to the cross, on the way to accomplishing the mission that Jesus came to this earth to accomplish, Jesus is telling his disciples exactly what is going to happen when they get there. Like, the whole entire time Jesus is on earth, it's for one goal. He's, get, he's heading to Jerusalem. And the thing about Jesus is, at least this time, he doesn't make his disciples read between the lines. He is extremely explicit in what is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Listen to what he shares with them in Mark 10, starting in verse 32. This is what we read. It says, They were on the way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while all those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what exactly was going to happen to him. He says this, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. No reading in between the lines here, right? With that explanation of what he said. That's why it's so surprising when, you actually, when we get to the end of this gospel and Jesus actually dies on the cross. And, be, and the disciples are so disillusioned. Like he told them, this is exactly what's going to happen. And when we get to the end of the gospel, it happens exactly how he says it was going to happen. And the disciples were still surprised and still shocked. They didn't see it coming, even though Jesus had been very clear to them about what was going to happen. Now, there are lots of ways the disciples could have responded to Jesus as he shared this in this moment. They could have protested like Peter did, like we looked at last time. They could have celebrated this news and celebrated the resurrection. 
They could have said, after you rise from the grave, Jesus, what is the mission going to look like after all that? But they didn't. They don't respond in any of those ways. And instead, in that moment, there's two disciples, James and John, who actually step forward. And this is what we hear them say to Jesus in verse 35. It says, then, and this was, so Jesus just finished telling them this. Then, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And this is how they replied. Let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said this to them. This is how he responded. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or can you be baptized with the, bapti- with the baptism I'm baptized with? In the Old Testament, that word cup and that word baptism refer to some challenging ordeals. Like these aren't positive words that are usually being used when someone talks about drinking the cup or the baptism I'm about to experience. They're not talking about joyous celebrations. They're talking about these are going to be challenging, difficult ordeals. See, the thing is we still use that word baptism like that in a way, right? Like we we have the saying, someone is going through a baptism of fire, which is what are we suggesting? They're going through a challenging time, right? The word cup actually is used to describe an even more specific ordeal. It refers to God's divine justice, his wrath, his judgment. In Isaiah, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 51. He says, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup of God's wrath. Now, sometimes we get a little hesitant, I think, when it comes to talking about God's wrath and his judgment and his justice. Because maybe because there's this sense that it doesn't reflect his love, that those two are separate, right? How many times do we hear ourselves saying, well, the Old Testament is all about God's wrath and his judgment, and the New Testament is all about his love. And they kind of just don't meet, right? And there's that sense that doesn't reflect his love and his grace. But they really aren't incompatible, these two. In fact, they're actually inseparable. You can't have one without the other. They work together, Right? Think of it this way, if you are a parent and you see someone or something destroying your child, how does your love for your child in that moment express itself? It usually might express itself in anger, right? That there's a sense of what is happening is not right and that and your love for them demands something to be done. They work together, right? At its essence, at its, ess- at its essence, what is sin? What is sin? Have you asked yourself that question at all? 
Like, what actually is sin? Well, sin is actually destroying the beautiful thing that God has created. When we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, to live out the love of Christ that has called us to, we are not only destroying our neighbor, we are also destroying ourselves in the process. When we take our bodies and our souls that God has created and we come to a moment in our life and we've decided that we are the ones that are ultimately in charge, the outcome is destructive for ourselves and others. So God's wrath and his love are not incompatible. They are, in fact, inseparable. The cup of God's wrath is actually an eternal monument to the love of God. Now, you may be thinking already, Bill, um, this doesn't make sense. You kind of said that this, this sermon, this message today is going to be about leadership. What does the wrath what is, and the judgment, what is the cup of God and, and the baptism have to do with leadership? Well, can I answer that? Well, everything, actually. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he drank that cup of God's wrath. He drank that cup that we should have drank because we are the ones destroying the beautiful thing that God has created. When Jesus asked James and John if they can drink the same cup that he drank, that if they can experience the same baptism that he's about to face, what he's actually asking them is actually a leadership question. He is saying, you want to sit in these positions of power and leadership, but you don't realize what kind of leader I am. I'm not a leader like the leaders of this world. I serve those I lead. I give my life for those that I lead. And here's what's interesting in all of this. When Jesus asks them that question, their immediate response is, yeah, no problem. We can do that. We're willing to go through a little bit of hardship. That's not going to be an issue at all. Of course we can do all that. Look at how Jesus responds. To them. After they ask that, starting in verse 39, they say, Oh, yes, we are more than able to do that. Then Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. In other words, Jesus is telling them that they will definitely drink the same cup he's drinking from, in that following Jesus, they will experience challenges. They will experience difficulties. But he's also telling them that leadership is not just about serving and experiencing difficulties in order to get what you want. You don't, you don't do all that to get what you want. He's saying in this moment that it's serving others just in order to serve others. That's it. You serve just because you want to serve others. It's serving others because that's what true leadership looks like in the kingdom. 
And when the rest of the disciples see what James and John are doing, they are ticked off at them. They're probably, they're, I think they're probably ticked off on because they probably were thinking, man, why didn't I think of that first, right? So Jesus brings all of the disciples together and he addresses this issue of leadership with them. Listen to what he says, verse 41. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. It's really hard to state how mind-blowing this concept is to the disciples as they're hearing this. We talked a little about, about this already in the previous weeks, about a king who serves, right? In their mind, a king is powerful. It's a position of power. Um, people serve him, you know, and all of that. But Jesus is talking about a king who actually serves. And according to the disciples and what they've understand, what they've experienced, what's part of their world, kings don't do that at all. Kings do not serve. They are served still today. Any types of people in those types of positions, they're not, they don't serve other people. There's people that serve them. And Jesus says, this is what this king does. This is what I do. I serve. And that doesn't mean we don't serve Jesus in following him. It just means that our service to Jesus is in response to his service to us. Now, there's all kinds of implications to this. When you're in a vibrant relationship with a leader who is a servant leader, it changes you. And since Jesus is a servant leader, when you're in a vibrant relationship with Jesus, it changes the way you lead. And let's look at four characteristics of a servant leader. A servant leader is not preoccupied with recognition. They are not preoccupied with recognition. When your primary goal is to serve those that you lead, then being recognized, you know, getting all the credit, is not nearly as important. That when you're a servant leader, you don't have to obsess over whether someone got more credit than you. That doesn't mean that servant leaders are passive or don't have a boldness in the way that they lead. It just means that their boldness is focused on accomplishing the mission, not on promoting themselves, not on them getting the recognition, not on them making sure everyone knows that they're the ones that should be getting all the credit. Jesus was all about advancing the mission. He was not about advancing himself at all. And servant leaders are the exact same. Servant leaders are all about advancing the mission and not about advancing themselves. They're not about promoting themselves. They're not about trying to get all the attention and all the recognition when things are going great. So they get all this praise. That's not 
what a servant leader is all about. A servant leader is not preoccupied with recognition. Another thing a servant leader is, is that a servant leader is not enslaved by the need of affirmation. Now, we live in a culture that is enslaved by the need of affirmation. We crave it. We are addicted to affirmation in our culture. And you know what? And for many people, we live and we die by every like, every comment, every view, and every follow on social media. You know, when we are on social media, we are craving that affirmation that someone's going to like our picture or like our post. And there's so many, there's a lot of people out there that once they post a picture, they check back two minutes later. It's like, oh my goodness, how come no one's liked it yet? We seek and we crave, and many people live and die by that affirmation. Now, that does not mean that a servant leader does not want the affirmation of others. Let's be honest, all of us want that. We all want to be affirmed in what we're doing. It's just that as much as we want it, a servant leader isn't enslaved by it, right? A servant leader isn't controlled by it. They're not controlled by what other people think of them. The reason that that is so important is because oftentimes doing the right thing as a leader will not result in a ton of affirmation. Sometimes, or a lot of times, that happens. As a leader or a leadership team, if they do the right thing, a lot of times they're not going to receive a ton of affirmation. Sometimes doing the right thing as a leader just simply doesn't get much affirmation. In fact, it actually may result in the opposite, to be honest. It may result in attacks. It may result in gossip. It, might, it may result in slander. It may result in criticism. It may result in people turning your back on you. If you are a slave to affirmation, then you will find yourself as a leader always tending to do the safe thing, the popular thing, the easy thing. And sometimes as a leader, those safe and popular things is actually not the right thing to do. This reminds me of Moses, to be honest. When he led the people out of bondage from Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments. And at that moment, God was telling them, at that moment, enter into the promised land. Enter into the promised land and take the land. It's yours. Go now and go and take it. But in that moment, Moses was a slave to affirmation. Because in that moment, instead of obeying God and going into the promised land and taking the land, instead, what does he do? He sends 12 spies to see what they think, to go in and spy on the land and to get an overall perspective and report on, on this land that they were being told to go and take. And we know that they come back, and we know that 10 out of the 12 spies say, we can't go into that land. We can't take that land. There's giants there. There's, we'll get destroyed in there. We can't do that right now. But we know that two of these spies 
Caleb and Joshua, actually say, yes, we can go and take the land. Let's go and do it. If God says we can, then let's go and take it. And apparently, those reports somehow got out. They got out to all of the rest of the people, and they were widely spread. And the people were starting to hear these reports. And all the people began to say, we should not go into this land. And in that moment, Moses is a slave to the affirmation of all these people. And he actually chooses to not go into the land. And you know what the result of that decision was, right? 39 more years of wandering in the desert, primarily because in that moment, when God said, go and take the land, Moses was a slave to affirmation and bended himself to what the, what the people were telling him what he should do instead of doing what God had instructed him to do. Sometimes the minority, minority report is right. Sometimes the right thing to do won't always generate the most affirmation. But if we are confident in God's affirmation of us, if we can be confident and secure in his affirmation of us, it will actually set you free to live the bold lives that God has created you to live and to lead in bold ways. You cannot lead boldly if you are a slave to affirmation. So a servant leader is not preoccupied by recognition. A servant leader is not enslaved by affirmation. A servant leader also prioritizes relationships. A servant leader will prioritize relationships. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was an amazing pastor and author, part of the confessing church in Hitler's Germany, and he writes something interesting about this dynamic. He talked about how the natural impulse of the human heart when you meet someone new is to immediately look for a position of what he calls strategic superiority. In other words, what he's suggesting is that the first thing that you do when you meet someone new is you compare yourself in some way to the person to see if they are a threat to you in any way. Then, if you don't perceive them as a threat, you begin to assess how you can use their gifts, their talents, their strengths to advance you and your cause. Now, that type of leadership is going to be always asking the question of, how can this person serve me? How can this person help me? How can this person help me advance in my position, in my cause? Rather than to ask what a servant leader asks. A servant leader would ask, how can I serve this person? The difference between a servant leader and those Jesus calls the rulers of this world is that a servant leader, relationships actually matter. With a servant leader, you are more than just the sum total of what you can actually produce. Think about it for a moment. These people Jesus sent out to do this amazing ministry, these are the same people Jesus spent three years with, investing in them. 
and over and over and over again, he demonstrated his love for them in tangible ways. Ultimately, he lays down his life for them. Jesus didn't use them. He served them. He loved them. He cared about them. And in serving them, he actually empowered them to actually use their gifts and their talents and their strengths in a way to actually change the world. Here's the principle in all this. Authentic relationships aren't a limitation to missional success. They are instead essential for missional success. So a servant leader prioritizes relationships. And it's about how can I serve this person that they put their relationships above advancing themselves and using them to better them themselves. And a servant leader is not paralyzed by fear as well. A servant leader is not paralyzed by fear. By, taking, by talking about the cup he must drink and the cup the disciples must drink, Jesus is reminding them that leadership is not easy. It's not. That there are sacrifices in leading. There's going to be challenges in leading. And Jesus is reminding them that no matter who you are or what your leadership role is, that there will be a cup that you will have to drink from. But what he is saying is that you don't have to be intimidated by that. It doesn't have to paralyze you. It doesn't have to paralyze you by fear, by drinking of that cup. Jesus is saying that I drank of the cup. I served you so that you can drink the cup, so you can serve others and not be destroyed by this cup. See, when we have this mentality, it actually changes things in our heart and in our life. It actually, to be honest, it changes our prayers as well, to be honest. I remember when I was dipping my toe in ministry, um, and I was starting to get opportunities to, to lead Bible studies, and then got opportunities to, to preach um, in our church. Um, and I remember one time asking my pastor. We had this great mentor, mentor-y type of relationship. I remember asking him one time when I was about to preach. It might be the first time I preached. It might have been the second time. But I remember asking him early on about preaching. Because at that time, and to be honest, it still does, it intimidated me when, he started get, when they gave me opportunities to preach. It intimidated me mainly because of my feeling of unworthiness. I'm like, I have nothing to say. I am not worthy to present God's word to these people. I'm young. You know, what do I know? There's more people in this church that's going to listen to me that should be up here, and I should be listening to them. And it also, in the back of my mind, it also had to do with my past speech problems of being up in front of people speaking. And so I asked him, do you still get nervous when you preach? And he said, Oh, you better, be, better believe I do. Absolutely. But he said something that changed for me. He told me, my prayer before I got up to preach was this prayer. Lord, help me. Help me. And I said, man, I can identify with that. And to be honest, I still can. And there, 
the way I interpret my nervousness every single time I come before you is because I care. And if I didn't care, I probably wouldn't be nervous. I wouldn't have the butterflies going. It's because I care. I care because, number one, this is God's word. And I want to make sure it's represented well and interpreted properly. It makes me nervous and shows that I care because I want to make sure it helps you and it impacts you. And hopefully it changes you. Not with what I say, but with what God says in his word. And he would say, Lord, help me. And I'm like, man, I can identify that. And he said, I came to realize at one point that was actually a selfish prayer. Because if you think about it, he said, Lord, help me. is a prayer all about me. When I say, Lord, help me, it's all about me. So he said, so I changed my prayer. He said, I changed my prayer from Lord, help me, to Lord, use me. And he said, when I made that change, it changed everything for me. Not just in my preaching, he said, but in all of my ministry. Because the prayer, Lord, use me, is not a prayer about me. It's a prayer about the people I lead, the people I serve, the people I care about, the people I love. It's a prayer about the kingdom. And once I could get myself out of the way, and that's usually the biggest problem for any of us, right? Just stepping out of the way and getting out of God's way and then start praying, Lord, use me, things began to change in my preaching and my ministry. Hearing that had a huge impact on me. And it changed my prayer to, Lord, use me. Now, do I say, do I, always, do I fall back to those prayers of, Lord, help me? Absolutely, I do. But when I can keep that mentality of a servant leader and pray, Lord, use me. It's the prayer I prayed as I walked up here today. Lord, take whatever it is you have to say and use it in some way that will advance the kingdom and help people. And maybe for some of you, your prayer needs to change in some area of your life. From, Lord, help me, to Lord, use me. Maybe a challenge that you're facing right now, you need to pray, Lord, use this, this challenge, this difficulty to somehow advance the kingdom. Maybe you're dealing with something physically or financially or maybe even relationally where your prayer needs to, needs to change to, Lord, use me and use this. If God can take the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, the nailing of the Son of God to a cross, and use it to accomplish the best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, our redemption, our restoration, our forgiveness, God can use anything and anyone. So, Maybe, just maybe, our prayer needs to change from God help me to God use me. God, that is our prayer. Lord, I pray that we can make that shift in our life from, by maybe praying that prayer, Lord, help me all the time, and maybe it's time to make a change and a transition to, Lord, use me.
Lord, use me in whatever this situation is. Lord, use this to impact lives. Use this to point people to Christ. Use this to build and advance your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we can realize that if we are a follower of you, Lord, we are all leaders. It doesn't mean that we're all suitable for formal leadership in a church setting. But Lord, we're all leaders because we have this responsibility to influence someone else and other people. And I pray that we can just learn from your style of being a servant leader. It's not about us. It's not. It's not about how much we get praised, how much we get recognized. It's not about us using other people to advance ourselves and our cause, but it's about you and it's about others. So I pray that you will just give us this servant's heart to serve others. Not to try to get anything in return. Not to try to maximize our gains. But Lord, just to serve them. Because it's a response of how you've served us. And I pray that you will use us in those opportunities this coming week and beyond. We pray this in your name.